Welcome to the Restoration Church weekly podcast. Please take a minute to subscribe to our YouTube channel and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. And be sure to download the Church Center app. This is the best way to stay connected and up to date with all that's happening at Restoration Church. Most importantly, we hope the following message will help draw you closer to Christ. Thanks for listening. first of its kind at Restoration, the longest night service. This service is meant to create a safe space for you to simply be. To simply be in whatever form that needs to take for you tonight. To set aside what might be expected of you this Christmas season and to set aside the commercialized, often manufactured feelings that come with this season. And simply be. With every and any emotion, again, that you might feel, simply be. To remember those you've lost. To mourn lost dreams. To grieve our broken state as human beings in a broken world. To weep for and over the world. Possibly even to confess how your heart is wayward this evening. This evening is going to include prayers, moments of silence, worship and song, brief reflection in God's word. We've crafted this service today because today is the winter solstice. You might know today is the winter solstice. This is the longest night of the year. No other night will have this much darkness, which means tomorrow is a hopeful day full of a little more light. This is the night when darkness lasts the longest and it's symbolic of the sorrow that we carry. As you entered, you should have received a candle. And this candle is symbolic of the darkness too. The darkness that we carry. It's symbolic of the burden that we carry, the sorrow that we carry, the guilt that we carry, the grief, the anxiety, the loneliness. Symbolic of all of those things, the despair. And here, in front of me, is the candle that represents Christ, surrounded by the candles of Advent, the candles of hope, love, joy, and peace. If at any time throughout this night, if at any time throughout the night you feel like you are ready to take a step into hope, You're ready to take a step with Jesus. You're ready to take a step into greater peace and greater love and greater hope and greater joy. Then my encouragement to you is to come forward and to light the candle that signifies our despair and our burdens and our sorrows. Light that candle and place it alongside the Christ candle as a symbolic gesture that you are ready to walk with Christ now into a hopeful future. And in addition, if you need prayer or someone to confess to this evening, then we have Andrew, Diana, and Sherry in the front row. 
they're ready and willing to pray with you, to listen, to grieve with you, to sorrow with you, to hear you, to listen to you, to be with you. I'd encourage you when you're ready, if you need it, to come forward and receive prayer and their listening air. And you are welcome to take whatever posture you'd like this evening. Whatever posture you feel like you need to, if you need to just sit and be still and listen, if you want to stand and put your hands in the air, you're welcome to do whatever you feel like is necessary for you. We're going to begin with a reading titled, And, by Sarah Anderson. This year didn't go the way I planned or even expected. There is no and yet or but to follow that up. Right now, it just is. There is an and, though. It wasn't what I planned. That's been hard. And. There have been insights I am not sure I would have found as meaningful without it. Being human means experiencing grief in all its forms beginning on day one. Being here means being in grief. Grief isn't an experience or a matter of if or when. It's a matter of right now and how we host the grief when we can't ignore it anymore. Grief, in some sense, is ever-present. And Advent reminds me God, in every sense, is ever-present too. This Christmas season, I am hosting grief and I am hosting hope. I am hosting uncertainty, and I am hosting a new version of normal. I am hosting dual realities and making them both feel at home. And. This is a liturgy to begin a family gathering after loss. From Every Moment Holy, Volume 2. O Spirit, give comfort to all in this fellowship of the wounded. Meet and minister to each according to their need. O Christ, who does not shrink from sorrows, teach our hearts to wrestle honestly with our hurts. Indeed, there is no virtue in pretending things remain the same as they were before. 
for there is little healing that can happen if we hide our tears from one another or allow silent frustrations to simmer until we are separated by misunderstandings. Let us not avoid our sadness to preserve a shallow calm. Rather, let us seek to speak good and necessary words and to act with compassions that will further bond us in our grief. Let us be mindful of checking in from time to time to see that none have fallen far behind, but that each is learning to travel forward into life carrying this burden of precious sorrow. Let us remember often your faithfulness, O Lord, meditating on your love, which undergirds our lives, and on your promises, which transcend our dying. You have promised, O God, that death will one day give way to resurrection. Our losses will be restored, our griefs redeemed. Kindle these hopes within us. In John 11, Jesus is told by messenger that a good friend of his named Lazarus has died. And so he and his friends begin to make their way down to Bethany, where Lazarus had lived. And there he begins to interact with Lazarus' two sisters, named Mary and Martha. And we learn some important truths about who Jesus is and how Jesus provides during our great moments of grief. And we can probably all relate in some ways to one of these two women. Martha, who is the oldest sister, she's type A. She lived in a world of analysis. She's responsible, hardworking. She's practical, driven, not overly emotional. But she carries a lot of regret and a lot of guilt as she carries the weight of her responsibility as the oldest sister. She's an if-only kind of person. You know, if only we would have gotten Lazarus better care. If only we would have diagnosed the problem sooner. If only he would have exercised more. If only he would have eaten better. She's enslaved to the past. She's having a hard time moving forward. But life happened. Lazarus died. And the present is, as it always is, what it is. So Jesus says to Martha, Martha, it's okay. Your brother will rise again. Instead of looking backwards at all the things that you have no control to change, try looking forwards, Jesus says. God is making all things new. There's coming a day when he's going to wipe away every tear from every eye. 
The old order of things will be done away with. It's coming a day when there will be no more crying and no more pain because Jesus is here to fix the brokenness. And Martha, you know, she says, that's great, Jesus, but right now I'm sad. And right now this is really hard. It's not fixed right now. And so Jesus looked at her and says, Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. In me, that future that you long for and hope for, because mourning proves that we're in agreement with God that the world is broken. That world that we long for and hope for, Jesus is saying, I am taking that world and I'm bringing it from the end of time and I'm dragging it down into the middle of time and it is available to anybody who puts their trust in me. I can give you the comfort that you desire. I can give you the solace that you need. The resurrection is not just an idea. It's not just an event. The resurrection is a person and that person is standing in front of you and he is inviting you to take a step into his life. The if onlys, they can become, if Jesus, if Jesus is who Martha is coming to believe he is, then this despair that I'm feeling will replaced with hope. And if Jesus is the Messiah, if he's the rightful ruler of the world, then death doesn't have mastery over this world. And if Jesus is the Son of God, the one in whom God is truly present, then God is here in the middle of our pain, in the middle of our struggle, in the middle of our temptation. God is present here. And if Jesus is the embodiment of love, then hatred doesn't have to control me. And if Jesus is the one who forgives, then I don't have to be shackled to a life of the past. I don't have to be shackled to all the things that I have done. I can be set free, and there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And if Jesus is full of compassion, then I am not alone when I suffer. And if Jesus is the resurrection and the life, then the pains and the sorrows and the hurts of this world will eventually be done away with. Death has been defeated, and sin no longer has to imprison me because we have been made new, and we can be made new. But then there is the other sister, Mary. And Mary is the opposite of Martha. She's the youngest sister. She's sporadic, she's wild, she's unruly. She takes life by the horns, she lives it to the fullest, she's adventurous, she's emotional, she's a crier. She's not stoic like her older sister. She's not the responsible one. She's not the one making all the funeral arrangements and all the plans and setting up the caterer. She's the one amidst the crowd crying with the people. And Mary meets Jesus not in this emotionless fashion put together like her sister. Mary comes running up to Jesus and she just beats on his chest. Two fists beats on his chest, cries down, broken down at his feet, and she is just sobbing and weeping uncontrollably. And Jesus doesn't theologize with her. He doesn't try to inspire her about the future hope that we all have. No. We're simply told this. Jesus wept. Jesus wept with Mary. The God who created the universe wept with her. The God who set the stars into place wept with her. And he weeps with each one of us as well.
Isaiah wrote concerning Jesus that he was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. He was despised and we esteemed him not. He took up our infirmities, he carried our sorrows, he was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that was upon him brought us peace, and by his wounds we are healed. Jesus, he's a man familiar with sorrow. He's a man familiar with mourning and crying and weeping and pain. He shares it to the point of tears. My friends, we are never alone in our grief. We're never alone in our sorrow. We're never alone in our pain. And so when the pain of loss or the pain of sorrow feels overwhelming, we need these two promises to hold us upright. It won't always be this way because Jesus has already secured the future and he has brought that future down into our present moments. And my friends, we are never alone. Not only do we have the body of Christ to comfort us, but we have the creator God drawing us near, weeping with us, holding us, and holding us up. is another reading from Every Moment Holy. There is so much lost in this world, O Lord, so much that aches and groans and shivers for want of redemption, so much that seems dislocated, upended, desecrated, unhinged, even in our own hearts. Even in our own hearts, we bear the mark of all that is broken. What is best in this world has been bashed and battered and trodden down. What was meant to be the substance has become the brittle shell, haunted by the ghosts of a glory so long crumbled that only its rubble is remembered now. Is it any wonder we should weep sometimes without knowing why? It might be anything, and then again it might be everything, for we feel this. We who are your children feel this empty space where some lost thing should have rested in its perfection. And we pine for those nameless glories. And we pine for all the wasted stories in our world. And we pine for these present wounds. We pine for our children and for their children too, knowing each will have to prove how this universal pain is also personal. We pine for all children born into these days of desolation whose regal robes were torn to tatters before they were even swaddled in them. Oh, Lord, how can we not weep when waking each day in this veil of tears? How can we not feel those pangs when we, wounded by others, so soon learn to wound as well and in the end wound even ourselves? We grieve what we cannot heal. And we grieve our half-belief, 
having made an easy peace with disillusion, aligning ourselves with a self-protective lie that would have us kill our best hopes just to keep our disappointments half-confined. We feel ourselves wounded by what is wretched, foul, and fell, but we are sometimes wounded by the beauty as well, for when it whispers, it whispers of the world that might have been our birthright, now banished, now withdrawn, as unreachable to our wounded hearts, as ancient seas receding down some endless dark. We weep, O oh Lord, for those things that, though nameless, are still lost. We weep for the cost of our rebellions, for the mocking and hollowing of holy things, for the inward curve of our souls, for the evidences of death outworked in every field and tree and blade of grass, crept up in every creature, alert in every longing, infecting all fabrics of life. We weep for the leers our daughters will endure, as if to be made in reflection of your beauty were a fault for which they must pay. We weep for our sons, sabotaged by profiteers who seek to warp their dreams before they even come of age. We weep for all the twisted alchemies of our times that would turn what might have been gold into crowns of cheap tin and then toss them into refuse bins as if love could ever be a cast-off thing one might simply be done with. We weep for the wretched expressions of all things that were first built of goodness and glory, but are now their own shadow twins. We have wept often, so often, and we will weep again. And yet, there is somewhere in our tears a hope still kept. We feel it in this darkness like a tiny flame when we are told Jesus also wept. You wept. So moved by the pain of this crushed creation, you, O oh Lord, heaved with the grief of it, drinking the anguish like water and sweating it out of your skin like blood. Is it possible that you, in your sadness over Lazarus, in your grieving for Jerusalem, in your sorrow in the garden, is it possible that you have sanctified our weeping too? For the grief of God is no small thing, and the weeping of God is not without effect. The tears of Jesus preceded a resurrection of the dead. O oh, Spirit of God, is it then possible that our tears might also be a kind of intercession? That we, your children, in our groaning with the sadness of creation, could be joining in some burdened work of coming restoration? Is it possible that when we weep and don't know why, it is because the curse has ranged so far, so wide, that we weep at that which breaks your heart, because it has also broken ours, sometimes so deeply that we cannot explain our weeping, even to ourselves? If that is true, then let such weeping be received, O Lord, as an intercession newly forged of holy sorrow. Then let our tears anoint these broken things and let our grief be as their consecration, a preparation for their promised redemption, our sorrow sealing them for that day when you will take the ache of all creation and turn it inside out, like the shedding of an old gardener's glove. O oh Lord, if it pleases you, 
when your children weep and don't know why. Yet use our tears to baptize what you love. Amen. The gift of silence is not one we often get in today's world. When the Israelites were in exile, they wrote a poem that was captured in the 137th Psalm. And it begins this way. By the rivers of Babylon, we sat and wept when we remembered Jerusalem. There on the poplars, we hung our harps. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. But how can we sing the songs of the Lord while we are in a foreign land? So they hung up their harps. Harps were played in the temple when worshipers would come and to praise the Lord. Harps were used during times of celebration. They were instruments of joy. It was played when there was a reason to praise God, when there was a reason to celebrate, when there was a reason to shout for joy. It was played when life was good. But the Israelites, they're not in Jerusalem anymore. Jerusalem has been destroyed, and they've been dragged away into exile, into the land of Babylon. They're slaves, and they're congregating by the river, and they're weeping, and they're mourning. But it was amid this despair, this pain of exile, that the people finally developed ears to listen. They had to come to that point where they had to hit rock bottom. They just couldn't understand what God was trying to do for them and in them until they finally hit rock bottom. And here they were, enslaved in a foreign land once again, and they are at rock bottom. And they finally have ears to listen, and they begin to cry out. They saw how their pride had gotten them. And the humility began to grow up through the wounds that they were experiencing. They stopped defending themselves. They stopped blame shifting. And they started taking responsibility. And their trouble that they had caused, and they began to confess their sins. Daniel, while in exile, confessed, Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love and those who love him and keeps his commandments, we have sinned. We have done wrong. We have been wicked and we have rebelled. We have turned away from your commands and laws. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets. And for another 10 verses, he confesses the sins of the Israelites. And confession always leads to freedom. Because it is the plea of the surrendered. And whenever there is more God and less of us, there will always be more freedom and less slavery. More peace and less anxiety, more love and less fear, more hope and less despair, more grace and less guilt. 
And it was during this act of confession that a new vision of the future emerged. Once Daniel is finished praying, the angel Gabriel, the same angel that appears to Mary at the birth of Jesus, Gabriel joins Daniel by that riverbank, and he presents him with a vision of the future. Seventy-sevens, he says, are decreed for your people. That's 490 years he's referring to. And your holy city to finish transgression. So even though Daniel is aware that his people's time in exile is coming to an end, the true exile he is coming to realize will not be complete for another 490 years, and that's not an exact time frame. Roughly 500 years from now, exile will finally come to an end. God's redemption, God's restoration for his people, God's salvation does not come with the rebuilding of the city. It doesn't come with the rebuilding of the temple. It doesn't come when you're freed from these Babylonians. You are still enslaved to your sin, Gabriel is telling Daniel. And so he continues, 490 years until the Lord will put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the Most Holy One. You see, God is doing a new thing. And this thing, it's not going to be like the old Exodus or the old covenant that freed people from the Egyptians, but it did not free them from the corruption of the human heart. It freed them from slavery, but not from their wickedness or of their sin. This thing won't be like the old covenant that was written on stone and presented in fire at Mount Sinai. It is going to be written on our hearts. It's going to be written on our minds. Jeremiah the prophet, God said through him, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by their hand to lead them out of Egypt. Rather, I will put my law in their minds and I will write it on their hearts. And God, through the people, uh, through, the, through the prophet Ezekiel, when casting the vision for this day, he said, I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and I will give you a heart of flesh. A heart of flesh means that your heart is now pliable and your heart is now responsive, a heart that feels the burden of doing wrong and a heart that wants to beat with life. And I will put my spirit in you and I will move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. God's saying, guys, I'm not putting all this on your shoulders. This isn't only your responsibility. We're going to do this together. I will help you. And so the people, they cry out, well, when? When, God? How, God? When will this restoration take place? When will this salvation come? When will we be set upright? Well, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the good promise I made to the people of Israel and Judah. In those days and at that time, I will make a righteous branch sprout from David's line. He will do what is just and right in the land. And so the people waited. And they watched with eager expectation for a king from the line of David who would rule justly and purely and lead God's people rightly into their golden age. But for now, the people of God were in mourning. They were troubled and they were saddened by what they had done and their response was to mourn. Yes, they were to mourn the state of the world, they were to mourn the state of their community, but more importantly, they were to mourn the state of their own heart. They were to mourn the brokenness of their own heart. And to cry out in confession because confession, opening our heart, exposing our heart, exposing our sins, laying them bare and out on the table, believing and trusting that God will handle it with care. 
that opens us up to receiving God's forgiveness, to receiving God's grace and his mercy and his spirit, which ultimately will change us and transform us. And so the Israelites, they sat in silence. They hung up their hearts and they sat. They sat thinking. They sat waiting. Sitting, mourning, praying, remembering, confessing, agreeing. Friends, when you are sitting in the rubble of the mess of your life, and everything you feel is crumbling down around you, and you are wrecked by what you've done and what others have done to you, and you feel hopeless because your future feels dark, or you're burdened because of loss, this is when we must cry out to God and invite him into our grief and invite him into our sorrow and open our heart to him because God will come to you not as a towering, condemning judge to chain you and to shame you, with a heavy hand, but he will extend out his hand and he will lift you up graciously and securely to set you back upright and usher you forward into new purpose. Listen to what God said through Jeremiah. When 70 years are accomplished in Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. And so they waited and they watched and they confessed. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. When we quote this, and we often do, many of us know this text, we apply it to ourselves. We don't realize that he's talking to a people who are enslaved in a foreign nation. Who are hopeless and they're in despair, but they're confessing their messes and they're crying out for deliverance. You will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all of your heart. I will be found by you, and I will bring you back from captivity. See, what you're experiencing right now, this isn't the end. Because if it's not good, then God's not done. God said through Isaiah, I, the Lord, I've called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and make you to be a covenanted people and a light for the Gentiles to open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. Therefore, take down your harps and sing to the Lord a new song. Renewed purpose for all of us. Roughly 490 years later, 500 years after the prophet Isaiah said all of this, the people walking in darkness, he says, have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. It's Christmas time. And Jesus, the great light of the world, the great hope of the world, the love of the world, the peace of the world, the joy of the world has come. The one who promised that these days of darkness will not last forever. And that the mourning and the crying and the pain that we experience, I am ushering in a new day where all of these things will be done away with. And this is the essence of Christmas. That God came into our mess to restore us and to lift us up. And if we are just honest about our mess, and if we just grieve alongside him and we admit our sorrows and we open ourselves up to the griefs, then God will come alongside of us and 
lift us up and set us on a new direction. God is that good. God is that good. That even while we were a mess, God loved us and sent his son to be an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Father, I want to thank you because you did for us what we could not possibly do for ourselves. And we are mourning and we're grieving and we're in sorrow and we carry so much upon our shoulders, Father, of this broken world and our broken hearts and our guilt that we carry, the shame that we've labeled ourselves, Father, we carry it all. And that was never your intention for us. That was never what you desired for us. That was never what you wanted for us. You didn't create us this way, Father, but we chose this through our own sinful actions, our own sinful rebellion. We chose to reject your love and to go our own way and to take control, Father. And that very first lie that we believed, we have been spiraling out of control. And the world is spiraling out of control. So you saw it fit, Father, that you would enter into the mess on our behalf. And you came in the most humblest of fashion. And you grew, Father, and you were not shackled to the sin of this world, Father. And so upon your death, you gathered up all of the sin and the mourning and the chaos and the turmoil that we have created, Father, and you nailed it to the cross. And you condemned it there, and you put it to death so that we could stand before you not condemned, and that we then could even live forever to be with you. And all you ask in return is that we would trust, that we would believe that what you have done for us is sufficient that you love us, that we would believe, that we would reject the lie that we are not loved, that we would believe again that you love us. And that you would transform our heart by giving us the gift of your Holy Spirit to walk with us and to empower our movements from here on forth. And I pray for every single person in this room, Father. Maybe some of them are unfamiliar with this message, Father. Open our hearts and our eyes to see you and to receive you. And I know that we are blinded sometimes because grief can do that and mourning can do that and sin and guilt and shame can do that, Father. But may we have the eyes to see what you have done for us and the love that you show us. And may we have the courage to accept it. Father, we live very busy lives. And I'll confess, 
that I have squeezed you so often into the gaps of my own agenda. And I haven't made room for you to do what you want to do in me. And so I take control and I do things my way. And I'm detached from the vine. And there is no life attached from the vine. And I shove you to the back burner and I push you off to the end of the day. And I need that to change more in me, Father. I need more of Jesus and less of me. take all the clutter in my brain and in my heart, Father, and shove it aside and trash it and burn it and do whatever it needs to do. So, so there is sufficient space for you to do in me what you want to do in me. And to conform me into the image of your son. Because I know, Father, that my relationship with Emily will be healthier. I know that my relationship with my kids, I know that my ability to lead this congregation, I know that my ability to be an advocate and an ambassador of you upon this world will be improved and better if I make room for you to do in me what you want to do in me. Your ways are better. Tear it on the walls of all my religion. Tear it on the walls of everything that I've claimed, Father, and tried. Your ways are better. stay as long as you need to. Are people available to pray for you? I can be available. Emily can be available to pray for you as well if you need that. But If you want to sit in silence, you're welcome to do that as well. But if you have places to be and kids you need to get home to, thanks for coming tonight. May we walk knowing that the sorrow that we feel will not last forever and that God is with us in our pain. God bless, friends.